Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1000. In politics, nothing happens by accident. Weaponized feminism and the hashtag MeToo movement part three, the crucible part two. This is being recorded on March 14th of the year 2018. There is an awful lot going on, and one part of me would like to lead the whole subject of the hashtag MeToo movement, and again, not feminism by any means, but weaponized feminism, as I explained in For the Record 998, and also the women's marches, which I think deserve some scrutiny in this same context largely because of some of the statements and behavior of some of the leaders and in fact some of the uh some of the actual leaders themselves uh, the person who appears to have come up with the idea of the women's march was a woman named and I'm not making this up Bob Bland yes Bob Bland is a woman I have not been able to find her real name, uh, her Wikipedia article or entry, describes her as having been raised in Northern Virginia. I'd like to know maybe where, you know, Falls Church, Arlington, Langley, and maybe what her family was into. She appears to be a born-again Christian, and that does not mean she is necessarily right-wing, but she changed her name to Bob Bland, B-L-A-N-D, to demonstrate uh, the broadness or whatever of Christ's love. I thought that was an, an odd thing. She appears to have been the prime mover behind the generation of the Women's March, and uh, she also is involved with the apparel industry, and her company recently landed a major defense department contract, which is sort of unusual, was certainly worth noting. Other leaders of the Women's March have been weighing in on behalf of Louis Farrakhan, or Louis X, as he used to call himself, when his behavior vis-a-vis the assassination of Malcolm X, uh, frankly, places him in a very suspicious Context. He publicly called for Malcolm X's assassination, and uh, Elijah Muhammad, the head of the Nation of Islam, felt that Farrakhan would make a very good successor to Malcolm X within the organization. Malcolm X's presence on the, or rather, uh, Louis X's, now Louis Farrakhan's presence on the day of Malcolm's assassination is unusual. He was based in Boston, but rather than attending Sunday services at the Boston Mosque, he was at the Newark, New Jersey Mosque on the day Malcolm was killed, and uh, the convicted assassins of Malcolm X were security men from the Newark Mosque, one of whom was subsequently appointed head of Mosque Seven in Harlem, that was the mosque that was headed by Malcolm X. The executive authority in the killing of Malcolm X 
was the same national security establishment faction involved in killing Martin Luther King, the Kennedys, and many other people. But they use uh, pliable assets at the operational level, and the evidence suggests that Louis X, or Louis Farrakhan, as he is now calling himself, was one of those. With leaders of the Women's March uh, having uh, allied themselves with and stood up for having stand, stood up for Louis Farrakhan when he unleashed a not atypical blast of anti-white racism and uh, Nazi-style anti-Semitism. I think that's worth going into as well. Again, I cannot stress strongly enough. But I'm not talking about feminism, but weaponized feminism. Also, at almost 40 years on the air, uh, I have come to have a rather jaded perspective. You cannot do this and not be affected by it. And part of the price I have paid over 40 years on the air is misanthropy. I'm a misanthrope, uh, quoting Hamlet. I care not for man or for, quote, women, unquote, either. I have a low opinion of human nature. I'll remember Emery's first principle. Most people are a-holes, and that's why the world is so full of S blank, blank, blank. Uh, people who have influence and power generally uh, leverage that influence and power for gain, be it financial and or sexual. So it would not surprise me if the vast majority of the charges against various men accused of getting grabby were true, but some of them clearly are not, and that includes especially uh, Senator Al Franken, whose removal via what was frankly a bloodless political assassination puts the Republicans in a better position vis-a-vis the 2018 uh, congressional races, the off-year elections. They had a narrow two-seat margin in the Senate. They only have to win eight seats to retain control of it. Al Franken's seat would not have come up for election until 2020. Now it is up for play in 2018. It remains to be seen what happens. Also, the removal of John Conyers, not only one of the originators of the Congressional Black Caucus, but the senior member of the House Judiciary Committee, which vets uh, the judicial appointments of the Trump administration or, or any administration, and who was also one of the few congressional critics of the Nazi Azov Battalion in Ukraine. He was removed, too, and he alleges that uh, his uh, settling of a harassment suit was simply to avoid the great expense of litigation. And I can imagine that that might well have been the case. A public figure, for a public figure under U.S. Uh, slander and libel law, defense uh, of or, uh, the legal defense uh, against slander or defamation is extremely hard to prove and consequently uh extremely expensive to litigate, and congressmen don't generally make all that much money. I would note, and we'll go into this, among the female staff members of John Conyers, who did not charge him with sexual harassment, 
was his administrator assistant of 20-plus years, a woman named Rosa Parks. That uh, name may sound familiar. It was Rosa Parks' disobedience of uh, the uh, Alabama municipal bus system's designation that she sit in the back of the bus that signaled the modern civil rights movement. And, and John Conyers hired her as his administrative assistant and where she served for more than 20 years. That alone would have gotten made him a target for the far right, as would his criticism of the Nazi Azov Battalion. Uh, vis-a-vis, uh, before I get into an interesting development vis-a-vis the Al Franken removal, uh, there is a technocratic fascist overtone to the entire hashtag MeToo movement. It is obviously derived from and aimed at social media. Social media themselves are a tremendously fascistic institution at a psychosocial sense. I would note that uh, a nice chunk of the momentum against Al Franken was derived by a, a Twitter bot network based in Japan and financed by a very wealthy and, to this date, anonymous individual and or organization. Not only do social media like Twitter, 140 characters in search of an author, lend themselves to superficial and, past the point, unverifiable allegation, but at a psychosocial sense, uh, Fascism, it can be thought of as bundle think at uh, an intellectual slash ideological sense. Fascism is derived, as Mussolini said, il fascismo e il corporatismo. Fascism is corporatism, or fascism uh, is, Mussolini said that uh, his fascist state was the corporate state. But at a psychosocial level, fascism derives from the fascus, the symbol of the Roman Republic. You will see that on the reverse of the old Mercury head dimes. It's a common symbol. It is a bundle of sticks that is bound together by leather and has an axe head on it. And at a psychosocial level, fascism is bundle think. Uh, I have seen definitions of fascists as deriving power from the support of those around them. That is uh, psychosocial fascism. Uh, The, you know, we are powerful uh, is something that can lend itself very readily to uh, a fascist construct. Uh, I would note that the word fascism has the same Latin derivation as the word fascinate, fascism, F-A-S-C-I-S-N, fascinate, of course, F-A-S-C-I-N-A-T-E, thinking about, for example, sporting events or rock concerts. They are very much akin to fascism, and those independents could be said to be, quote, fascinated, unquote, or fascinated. So when we're talking about hashtag me too, it is something that lends itself very readily to bundle think. 
and uh, we should not fail to take note of that. A very interesting observation about the bloodless assassination, political assassination of Al Franken uh, was carried in, and as someone that does not keep up with showbiz, doesn't watch TV at all, I don't like having to delve into the Hollywood press, the showbiz press, but from the deadline Hollywood blog of December 7th of 2015 by Greg Evans, Al Franken, Hollywood whiz in on resignation. Tom Arnold says Franken accuser was, quote, manipulated, unquote. Uh, Various uh, Hollywood figures are... Uh, quoted here as lamenting Franken's removal. What I would note, uh, again, is that the photos which led to this, including Al Franken's um, ostensible groping of Leanne Tweeden's breasts, it was obviously a gag. You wouldn't have had a photographer present. One could question the taste of such a move. She was wearing a flak jacket, which is at the opposite end of erotic apparel from anything you might see in the Victoria's Secret catalog. Uh, and uh, it, it is obviously not a serious sexual assault or harassment move. On that very same USO tour, there is a photograph of Leanne Tweeden grabbing the rear end of a male performer on stage. Um, I don't know if that was consensual. I doubt it. I also doubt that the performer raised hell about it. Certainly we haven't heard about it. Uh, there are other photos which are in the description to For the Record 998. In general, the aesthetic on a USO tour could be described as a post-adolescent uh, bawdiness or libidinous. Uh, I was reading about, which is not surprising given a USO tour and uh, the people to whom they cater. I was reading up on Leanne Tweeden and she described her interest in USO tours as originating with a photograph she saw of her father, who was a mechanic servicing B-57 bombers in Vietnam, attending a USO tour featuring Raquel Welch. Uh, for younger listeners, Raquel Welch was a very is a very statuesque movie star. I haven't seen her name in a long time. However, I do not think that Leanne Tweeden's father or any of the other service personnel in attendance at uh, that USO program were expecting Raquel Welsh to deliver a dramatic reading of Tess of the Durbervilles, okay? Uh, there are a lot of things one could say in connection with this whole thing, and really not being in a position to give what should be, at the very least, an academic quarter, if not semester-long course, on the political overtones of sexuality and the manifestations of same, this is necessarily going to be inadequate. But I do think that it needs to uh, be commented um, and uh, I would note in passing that many of the targets of these things, some of them like uh, Fox News personnel from the right, but we also saw a lot of people associated with NPR, a long-time bete noire of the political right, 
are being accused and in some cases removed from their positions as a result of allegations of sexual harassment, which may be true, but the thing that makes uh, the phenomenon a superb vehicle for covert operation and political manipulation is the very lack of vetting of the charges. Sexual harassment generally does not occur with witnesses present or photographers, and so it becomes uh, something that is past a point unverifiable. I, for one, do not believe, quote, the women, unquote, any more than I believe, quote, the men, unquote, because there is no such thing as a women, any more than there is any such thing as a men. There are individual men and individual women, some of whom are men and women of character, and some of whom I wouldn't micturate on if they were on fire. It really depends on the individual. The case of Al Franken is something that uh, really should be examined in much more detail. And my feeling about the craven Democrats who just fell in line with uh, the right-wing cutting edge of the Franken removal should be ashamed of themselves. They embody what uh, brilliant political comedian Mort Saul said decades ago, a liberal's idea of courage is eating at a restaurant that hasn't been reviewed yet. Amen, Mort Saul. Uh, in this article, again, by Greg Evans, Deadline, Hollywood, December 7th of 2017, Al Franken, Hollywood weighs in on resignation. Tom Arnold says Franken accuser was, quote, manipulated, unquote, a number of points. Uh, Tom Arnold asserts that John Phillips, uh, the partner on KABC radio of Leanne Tweeden and Roger Stone are pals, and that they coached her for weeks uh, that the only truth behind the allegations is the infamous photo, and the rest was created by Stone and Phillips. The photo is obviously a gag. And again, I don't fault Leanne Tweeden for grabbing the butt of a male performer on stage at the very same U.S. or on the very same USO tour. Obviously, this is the post-adolescent body-slash-libidinous aesthetic, which can be expected to prevail on a USO tour. Again, when Tweedon's father went to see Raquel Welch, he was not expecting her to present a dramatic reading of Wuthering Heights or any such thing. Continuing, Tom Arnold has proof that, again, the only truth behind the allegations is the infamous photo of the rest was created by Stone and Phillips. Arnold has proof of this. He apparently got a bunch of takedown Al correspondences of Roger Stone and company sent to him by someone. Arnold then tweeted that he got off the phone with Tweeden and that Tweeden claims she didn't know Stone was involved until after he tweeted about Franken's time in the barrel. By the way, I view Leanne Tweeden with a jaundiced eye for reasons I will explain. Not only does she have a history with Fox News, among others, uh, she is certainly someone who will use her considerable charms for professional gains, something that I do not fault her for in and of itself. People have to eat, they have to pay rent, and posing for Playboy or Maxim or other publications is one way to do that. I do not fault her for that, 
but it is not altogether irrelevant because this is someone who will use her charms for political gain and professional gain as to whether or not she did that here remains a, a subject of speculation. However, her political gravitas tracks to the far right. Uh, more allegations from Tom Arnold. Tweeden also told Arnold that Sean Hannity saw the photo in 2007 and begged her to go on this show, but she wasn't comfortable with that. Tweeden has been showing the picture to people for years. Tweeden told Arnold that she was surprised that the people at KABC shared her story about Franken before she did, and that she is very distressed by the whole situation and never wanted Franken fired. Arnold accepts this. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I've got my doubts, but we don't know for sure. Uh, I would note that uh, Leanne Tweeden has a radio program, and you will believe me when I tell you that a radio program can be used as a vehicle for communicating political truth. Okay? Skipping down in this article. But none of the comments are as pointed as or lengthy as a string of tweets by actor Tom Arnold, who says it's his friend Leanne Tweeden, the first of Franken's accusers, whose photo of Franken smirkingly miming a breaststroke has been, quote, manipulated, unquote, by Roger Stone, among others, for political purposes, and that he has proof that Tweeden's story was used as part of a larger smear campaign against Franken. It's a disservice to victims, Arnold tweeted, using the hashtag MeToo hashtag Arnold has said he was molested as a child. At first, Arnold suggested that Tweeden was somehow in on the Stone plan, but then tweeted that he had spoken to Tweeden, for this is bad, unintentional puns, and that she did not know the, quote, people with bad intentions, unquote, who got involved in the reveal of her claims. And, uh, Here's a sampling of Hollywood and, and uh, some of the tweets. I'm disappointed with my friend Lee. This is from Tom Arnold. I'm disappointed with my friend Leanne Tweeden. Her partner at KABC, John Phillips, is a Roger Stone pal, and they coached her for weeks to bring Al Franken down. I had hoped she'd use her voice to speak out for all women against predators like Roy Moore and Donald Trump, but she is a birther. If, in fact, that is the case, that puts her in the same political quadrant as Donald Trump. The other accuser, I forgot my first name, but Menz, who then chimed in that uh, Al Franken had groped her at a Minnesota state fair, and there was a photograph of him posing with her. She says that occurred with her husband and her father looking on. Uh, both Ms. Menz and her husband are Donald Trump voters. Uh, so I wonder, if she's a birther, that, fit, that fits in very nicely with her Fox News uh, presence. And uh, again, if she really is that upset, she does have a radio show. She might just clarify things. I've gone to bat for Leanne, uh, more Tom Arnold, I've gone to bat for Leanne a hundred times this last month, hoping she'd at least reveal her whole truth too but she ghosted me. I know every single detail of this political manipulation. KABC should lose their license. Promoting a fraud is a federal offense and FCC violation. 
I would not wait for Donald Trump's FCC to pursue something like that. Also, uh, FCC violations are complaint-oriented. More from Tom Arnold. To put a button on this, the only truth about my old pal Leanne Tweedens' Al Franken story was the picture. The rest was created by KABC colleague and fellow Trump supporter John Phillips and his bud Roger Stone, who coached Leanne for weeks to take Al down. Mission accomplished. And this this would indicate that uh, Leanne Tweedens was also... A uh, a Trump voter. Uh, if she's a birther, that is more than a little important. More from Tom Arnold. I'm hashtag me too and don't doubt any other woman but the Leanne Tweeden, John Phillips, Roger Stone lies and setup of Al Franken were part of a larger smear campaign against Al initiated at the same time Leanne came out at ABC. I have proof. Leanne knows it. It's a disservice to victims. Just got off the phone with my old friend Leanne Tweeden, and here's what I know now. She didn't know Roger Stone was involved until after he tweeted about Franken's time in the barrel. And uh, he goes on to claim that she was distressed and didn't know about this. You know, well, maybe. On the other hand, if she is a birther, that would fit in very nicely. Again, uh, th- this is a lengthy and a very complicated subject. I could go on for a long time about this. Uh, about John Conyers, again, uh, the one of the founders of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, one of the few critics of the Nazi Azov Battalion, uh, the point military unit for the Ukrainian military receiving weapons and training from the U.S. and sporting the swastika and the SS rune on their combat helmets. The chief spokesperson for that is Roman Zvorich in the early 80s, the personal secretary to Yaroslav Stetsko, the head of state of the Nazi collaborationist government in Ukraine during World War II that implemented Nazi ethnic cleansing against ethnic Poles, ethnic Russians, Jews, Roma, and others. In a scandalous article in the Huffington Post, John Conyers was labeled Putin's man in Congress, very typical of the new McCarthyism, that in and of itself plus his Criticism of the Nazi Azov Battalion would have made him a target of the right. So would this. From the World History Project, uh, an entry by Kevin Rogers, 1965, Rosa Parks hired as a secretary to John Conyers. Skipping down. Parks, of course, Rosa Parks and her civil disobedience refusing to go to the back of a municipal bus, and I believe it was Montgomery, Alabama, basically signaled the modern civil rights movement. Perks worked as a seamstress until 1965 when African-American U.S. Representative John Conyers hired her as a secretary and receptionist for his congressional office in Detroit. She held this position until she retired in 1988. So, again, uh, 
some perspective on John Conyers. Now, and again, I should stress that I am not talking in a critical way here about feminism, but about weaponized feminism. I noted in, for the record, 998, that uh, Angelina Jolie, one of Harvey Weinstein's uh, accusers, uh, co-authored an op-ed column in The Guardian with none other than Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, uh, advocating that NATO take the lead in enforcing women's rights globally. NATO is a war-fighting organization, and believe me, war is not kind to women and children. I also found it grotesquely ironic that uh, Julie Stoltenberg cited as an early example of NATO's feminist proactivism a successful Example of NATO's feminist proactivism, the Kosovo campaign. The NATO campaign in Kosovo put in power and was fought alongside of, uh, according to Chris Hedges, then of the New York Times, the sons and grandsons of various fighting formations, including the 21st Waffen-SS Division composed, the Skanderbeg Division composed of Albanian Muslims. The beneficiary of the NATO campaign in Kosovo, Hashim Tachi, T-H-A-C-I, maintains a 50-some-odd strong, or perhaps weak would be a better way of putting it, a harem of sexual slaves to cater to his needs and to those of his cabinet. These are women who are basically, uh, again, sex slaves. They are uh, held against their will and forced to do the sexual bidding of Topsy and his associates. Uh, hashtag make me effing puke. Uh, again, when you see something like that from Angelina Jolie and the Secretary General of NATO, well, NATO should take the lead in uh, defending women's rights. Believe me, you are talking about weaponized feminism. I would also note, uh, in the context of divide and conquer, one of the oldest of the gambits of cynical Machiavellian power politics, the Women's March, which has become something of an institution, uh, has recently come under fire mostly from right-wing media and from Jewish media voices, Israeli and others, because three of the leaders of the Women's March, Carmen Perez, Tamika Mallory, and a Palestinian Muslim woman named Linda Sarsour, whose last name translates cockroach, uh, have been associating with and or defending none other than Louis Farrakhan. Uh, Louis Farrakhan weighed in on uh, the hashtag MeToo movement and Hollywood in general in a characteristic fashion. Quote, Jews were responsible for all this filth and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. White folks are going down. And Satan is going down. And Farrakhan, by God's grace, has pulled the cover off that satanic Jew. And I'm here to say, your time is up. Your world is through, unquote. 
sounds uh, absolutely Hitlerian, and indeed, as I have noted in AFA program number 13 and in other shows, not only is Hasparacom network with various wet supremacists, including the leader of the Michigan clan, the late Robert Miles, he is also one of the icons of the fascist third position. And uh, in an article from the Jerusalem Post of March 3rd of 2018, in the interest of time, I'm simply going to sum this up. The actual text is in the written description for the program, which will be available presently. Women's March leaders refused to condemn Farrakhan after anti-Semitic speech. And this was the uh, delightful little harangue you just heard, where they made uh, Goebbels blush, perhaps. And, uh, again, uh, people like Linda Sarsour, Carmen Perez, and Tamika Mallory basically defended Farrakhan and uh, would not come out and uh, label that speech for what it is. I would also uh, note another article from The Forward, uh, a Jewish-American publication of March 2nd by Elad Neharad, Memo for the left, denounce anti-Semite Louis Farrakhan. Again, talks about uh, the effects of having an iconic movement in what passes for the progressive sector. This is why, basically, I always say the so-called progressive sector, uh, basically toadying up to and defending an outright African-American fascist, uh, Louis Farrakhan. Uh, Linda Sarsour, by the way, along the lines of divide and conquer, was championing and shepherding about a woman named Rosmia, R-E-S-M-E-A, O-D-E-H. O-D-E-H. She was a convicted Palestinian terrorist who now says her, con- her, her confession was obtained under torture. I've got my doubts. Uh, she is, however, very proudly was a member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The Habash brothers, George and, uh, not Lewis, but I've forgotten the other uh, Habash brother. There is also a Lewis Habash, but the Habash family and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, as discussed in Dreamer of the Day by Kevin Coogan, are protégés of Francois Genoux, one of the most important figures in not only the Nazi intelligence system, but in particularly uh, the post-war Nazi diaspora. He financed Eichmann's defense, financed the defense of Klaus Barbie, and again, Francois Genoux, who was, whose protégés, the Habash brothers, and their organization, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Francois Genoux, was the heir to the political last will and testament. Again, the political last will and testament and collected literary works of A. Adolf Hitler, B. Martin Bormann, C. Josef Goebbels. And Wozniak Oday, protege of Linda Sarsour, was a member of the Genoux protected and sponsored PFLP. Again, perfectly designed to discredit progressive politics, and there has been no shortage of fire from that from the right-wing media. Perfectly designed to alienate Jewish voters, or really anybody with a sense of civilized behavior, 
from the, quote, progressive, unquote, sector. And again, Linda Sarsour, one of the organizers of the Women's March, along with Tamika Mallory, who also has been networking with Farrakhan and defending him. The Women's March was organized by a very curious figure named Bob Bland. From Bob Bland, unquote, Wikipedia entry. Bob Bland, by the way, is a woman. Uh, her real name is not available. She is described as having grown up in Northern Virginia and being apparently a born-again Christian who changed her name to Bob Bland to demonstrate the uh, beneficence of Christ's outreach or whatever. But more to the point, Bob Bland originated the idea of the Women's March on Washington and associated international marches held after the inauguration of Donald Trump. Bland tapped Linda Sarsour, Tamika Mallory, and Carmen Perez as co-chairs in order to give the march a diverse leadership team. And something very interesting from Women's Wear Daily of May 10th of 2018 by Arthur Friedman, Manufacture New York Blossoms in Brooklyn. Last month, Manufacture New York became part of the U.S. Department of Defense and Massachusetts Institute of Techn- for Technology's sweeping $315 million public-private project called the Revolutionary Fibers and Textiles Manufacturing Innovation Institute aimed at keeping the country at the forefront of fiber and textiles innovation. Who's the founder of that company? Who's the head of that company? Which now is uh, part of a U.S. Pen- uh, Pentagon and MIT project for 315 million buckaroos. Manufacturer New York's bland, originator of the Women's March, will serve as the deputy director of apprenticeships and internships. And Bob Bland has also weighed in in defense of her, boy, that sticks in my car, I mean, just Bob Bland of her, whatever. Bob Bland has weighed in in defense of his fellow women's, her fellow women's marches, leaders Tamika Mallory, Carmen, Carmen Perez, and Linda Cockroach Sarsour in their defense of Louis Farrakhan. Now, we're going to go back into the archives of a little more than 20 years, almost now 25 years ago. We're going to listen to an excerpt of For the Record Program number 21, Louis Farrakhan and the Politics of Murder. And we're going to hear some interesting things about Louis Farrakhan and the murder of Malcolm X, among others. Farrakhan publicly called for uh, Malcolm X's elimination. Elijah Muhammad saw Farrakhan as an ideal replacement for Malcolm X. Uh, one of the reasons why Malcolm X was criticizing the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad is because they were taking funding from Texas uh, billionaire H.L. Hunt. So going back to the fall of 1995, this is an excerpt from For the Record 21, Louis Farrakhan and the Politics of Murder. The growing conflict between Malcolm X 
and Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, concerned uh, a number of sexual improprieties on the part of Elijah Muhammad and also the funding of the Nation of Islam that was being undertaken by H.L. Hunt, the ultra-right-wing Texas billionaire. That is discussed, by the way, in The Judas Factor. The result of that split between Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad was that the Nation of Islam began issuing uh, very pointed verbal attacks on Malcolm X, and uh, many of those attacks were issued by Louis X. One of the things that is discussed in the Judas Factor is that Elijah Muhammad believed that Louis X, by the way, that is what Louis Farrakhan was known at this time, that Louis X, although he revered Malcolm X, was himself very ambitious, and that in the event that Malcolm X was eliminated, i.e. killed, uh, Louis X uh, might very well be willing to assume Malcolm X's role as the chief spokesperson for the Nation of Islam. Carl Evans describes Elijah Muhammad's perceptions concerning Louis X, uh, now Louis Farrakhan, and his ambitions vis-à-vis Malcolm X as follows. Muhammad knew that Louis X worshipped Malcolm X, but he also knew that Louis X was ambitious and that with Malcolm X out of the way, Louis X had to know that the odds were very good that he would replace Malcolm X as the national spokesman for the Nation of Islam. Given those odds, Muhammad figured that Louis X would turn his back on his mentor. On January 7, 1964, the FBI taped a conversation involving Elijah Muhammad which should have, but didn't, result in his arrest, or should have resulted in his arrest, excuse me. The messenger made a veiled reference to killing Malcolm X. Quote, it's time to close his eyes, unquote, Elijah Muhammad said. When the Chicago Bureau of the FBI received transcriptions of the tapes chronicling its successful COINTELPRO against Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad, it sent a boastful memorandum to Hoover at FBI headquarters. Again, I want to note, uh, for the record, we have not got time to go into the full record of the assassination of Malcolm X. Uh, the evidence, as presented by Carl Evans in this excellent book, suggests that the executive authority was indeed uh, the same faction of our national security establishment that was behind the assassinations of John and Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and a great many other people as well. Uh, although the trigger men who performed the assassination were certainly uh, in the employ of the Nation of Islam, uh, the executive authority was well beyond the Nation of Islam. However, I think the behavior of Louis Farrakhan with regard to the assassination of Malcolm X, as uh, with regard to a great many other aspects of Louis Farrakhan's behavior, warrants much more serious scrutiny and should be being criticized far more emphatically than it is. The next segment of the Judas Factor that we're going to be examining in this particular segment uh, concerns the growing activities of Malcolm X in forming political liaisons with uh, diplomatic representatives of various black African nations, including uh, Mr. Kazan Saki. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. I've never heard it spoken aloud. Q-U-A-I-S-O-N hyphen S-A-C-K-E-Y. A Ghanaian diplomat. Uh, Mr. Kazan Saki had been elected president of the U.N. General Assembly in uh, 1965, or actually in 1964, and uh, this was of concern to the powers that be in this country because Malcolm X was already in close contact with Kazan Saki. As noted by Carl Evans in The Judas Factor, the public call in uh, the Nation of Islam's newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, 
by Malcolm X, or by, uh, excuse me, Louis X, then uh, the name that Louis Farrakhan was using then, uh, which contains a, a thinly veiled death threat against uh, Malcolm X, was issued at this very time. Perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not. The relationship between Malcolm X and Kazan Saki, the, U, the uh, president of the UN General Assembly, the uh, call issued by Louis X, now Louis Farrakhan, in Muhammad Speaks for Malcolm X's death, is described by Carl Evans as follows. On December 3rd, the FBI discovered that Malcolm X had had several recent meetings with Kazan Saki. Ordinarily, this would have been of little or no importance. The Bureau, after all, had observed Malcolm X over the last six months in the presence of diplomats Pio da Gama Pinto of Kenya, Frank Karifa Smart, K-A-R-E-F-A hyphen S-M-A-R-T of Sierra Leone, and Abdul Rahman Babu of Tanzania, that's B-A-B-U. But given the war in the Congo, the rancorous relationship between the Johnson administration and Nkrumah of Ghana, whom U.S. Ambassador Douglas Dillon labeled, quote, another Castro, unquote, and the fact that Kazan Saki had been elected president of the U.N. General Assembly on December 1st, things were anything but ordinary. The FBI's New York field office sent a memo to Hoover reacquainting him with Malcolm X's four-year relationship with Kazan Saki and reflecting on possible national security problems their friendship could, could create. Part of the memo read, With the return of Malcolm X Little from his African trip, the possibility exists that additional coverage of his activities is desirable, particularly since he intends to have the Negro question brought before the United Nations, or UN. The possibility also exists that Little may soon be changing his residence. This intensified coverage may take the form of spot-check surveillances. It is noted that Alex Kazan Saki, Ghanaian ambassador to the UN, has been elected president of the UN. And then, uh, by the way, it should be noted that the FBI was referring to Malcolm X by his given name, Malcolm Little. Uh, then Carl Evans goes on to describe the veiled death threat, uh, the thinly veiled call for Malcolm X's death that was issued in Muhammad Speaks by Louis X, or Louis Farrakhan, as he calls himself now. Carl Evans goes on to say, the reference to Malcolm X's change of residence wasn't a reflection of the Bureau's interest in the revolutionary's upward mobility. It was mentioned merely so wiretaps on his home telephone and bugging devices in his residence could be transferred. The same day, Muhammad Speaks issued what amounted to Malcolm X's death warrant. Attributed to Louis X. Farrakhan of Boston, the article stated in part, Only those who wish to be led to hell or to their doom will follow Malcolm. The die is set. And Malcolm shall not escape, especially after such evil, foolish talk about his benefactor, Elijah Muhammad, in trying to rob him of the divine glory which Allah has bestowed upon him. Such a man as Malcolm is worthy of death, and would have met death if it had not been for Muhammad's confidence in Allah for victory over his enemies. Louis X. Farrakhan also implied that Malcolm X had tried to use Elijah Muhammad's former secretaries, the very ones who filed the paternity actions, to assist him in, quote, planning Muhammad's overthrow, unquote. And then Evans uh, goes on to note that uh, perhaps coincidentally or perhaps not, uh, it was uh, at the very time that uh, Malcolm X was forming some of the political liaisons with black African leaders, including Alex Kazan Saki, uh, that uh, this particular uh, thinly veiled death threat was issued. Perhaps it was merely coincidental that the veiled death threats began appearing in Muhammad Speaks within days of Kazan Saki's elevation to president of the UN General Assembly. One thing is for certain. The FBI and CIA were closely monitoring Malcolm X's relationship with Kazan Saki after December 2nd, 
as well as his meeting with other African leaders and with Che Guevara. Uh, the next segment of the Judas Factor that we're going to be looking at concerns uh, Louis X's, now Louis Farrakhan's, curious behavior around the time of the assassination of Malcolm X, specifically on the date of Malcolm X's assassination. Again, I want to state that there is not enough evidence, certainly, to state that Louis Farrakhan was involved in the assassination. However, the evidence points in that direction, and I think there is much important research to be done in order to clarify the facts concerning uh, Farrakhan's, then Louis X's, behavior vis-à-vis the assassination of the man whose mantle he has assumed. Returning to the Judas Factor by Carl Evans, several FBI agents, for reasons which remain unclear, contacted sources in the Boston Mosque on February 21st to determine the whereabouts of Louis X. Farrakhan. Farrakhan, the FBI noted, quote, did not appear at the Boston Temple at the Sunday afternoon services. No one seems to know where Louis X. Farrakhan was during that period, or if, in fact, he was actually out of town, but his absence from services was noted, unquote. Uh, then Yvonne goes on to note that according to uh, Farrakhan himself, as uh, researched by Carl Evans, he was at the Newark, New Jersey mosque when Malcolm X was assassinated. Uh, and Evans also notes that it's unusual that no one in that mosque was aware of his plans to be in Newark, and also that uh, the four black Muslims who uh, conspired with uh, another of the assassins, a Mr. Hayer, to uh, kill Malcolm X were members of the Newark mosque. Continuing with the Judas Factor. According to Louis X. Farrakhan, he was at the Newark Mosque when Malcolm X was assassinated. It seems bizarre that no one in the mosque was aware of his plans to be in Newark. Oddly enough, the four black Muslims who Hayer said conspired with him to assassinate Malcolm X, Ben X. Thomas, a.k.a. Ben Thompson, Leon X. Davis, William X., and Wilbur X., were members of the Newark Mosque. Again, I think uh, in light of the behavior of Farrakhan vis-a-vis Malcolm's assassination, and in particular in light of some subsequent statements that Farrakhan has made, including uh, one statement uh, which basically, I'm going to paraphrase it, said, uh, so what if we, uh, first person plural, did kill him? Uh, what business it is, is it of yours, referring to uh, white people? One certainly does not want to use the first person plural when talking about murder. Uh, among the many grotesque aspects of Louis Farrakhan's uh, political pedigree uh, that uh, have not received the notice due them, uh, there's been a fair amount of discussion concerning his various forms of bigotry, including his virulent anti-Semitism. Uh, Louis Farrakhan's, uh, or Louis X, as he was called then, uh, behavior uh, with regard to the brutal murder of a breakaway Muslim sect called the Hanafis, uh, warrants serious consideration in light of the growing power and the mainstreaming of Louis Farrakhan in the wake of the Million Man March. As was the case of vis-à-vis Farrakhan's behavior with regard to the Malcolm X assassination, uh, Farrakhan was essentially a mouthpiece for the Nation of Islam and uh, in effect justified and used, not only justified the brutal murders that I'm about to describe, but uh, also used those murders uh, in what I think uh, could be a fairly labeled an attempt to warn or intimidate future enemies of the nation of Islam. In light of what uh, listeners are about to hear, I think they should seriously evaluate whether Farrakhan is an individual who should be uh, wearing the mantle of power that he now wears with regard to the power politics of black America. Returning once again to The Judas Factor by Carl Evans. 
In January of 1973, Louis X, who had become the national spokesman for the Nation of Islam, was again making veiled threats against anyone who dared criticize the messenger. The latest was issued after Elijah Muhammad, Louis X, and every other black Muslim minister received a letter from a man who called himself Hamas Abdul Khalis, K-H-A-A-L-I-S. Khalis, as it turned out, was Ernest T. 2X McGee, the former black Muslim national secretary demoted by Malcolm X in favor of John Ali in 1958. By the way, John Ali, a member of the Nation of Islam, was uh, described by Carl Levons in his book as uh, working undercover with the FBI. Continuing, after leaving the Nation of Islam, Khalis had formed an orthodox Islamic sect known as the Hanafi. The sect's headquarters were located in a home on 16th Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., which had been purchased by basketball star Lou Alcindor, who had joined the sect and been renamed Karim Abdul-Jabbar by Khalis. Dated January 5th, the scathing three-page letter to Muhammad denounced him as a, quote, lying deceiver, unquote, as well as questioned the character of NOI founder Wallace D. Fard. Khalis even called to question the legitimacy of NOI's basis in the Holy Quran. On January 17th, 1973, an eight-member black Muslim hit squad from the Philadelphia Mosque piled into a 1969 Cadillac and another vehicle and headed for Khalees' home on 16th Street in Washington, a middle-class community known as the Gold Coast, quote-unquote. At a cheap motel that evening, they made final plans to assassinate Khalees. The next morning, a member of the team telephoned Khalees' home to inquire about purchasing pamphlets written by the Hanafi. He was given directions to the home, and he then promised to stop by the next day. When the hit squad arrived at the 16th Street home, Khalis was away visiting friends and his wife was out shopping. But Almina Khalis, A-L-M-I-N-A, the leader's 23-year-old daughter, was there, as were her 25-year-old brother Daoud, D-A-U-D, and several small children. After Daoud sold two of the strangers some pamphlets, a third man claiming to be a repairman came to the door. While Daoud was telling him how to get to the rear entrance, the black Muslims suddenly assaulted him and forced their way into the house. Within seconds, all eight of the armed Philadelphia black Muslims were in the home. Daoud was taken to a bedroom on the third floor and forced to kneel on a prayer rug. A pillow was placed against his head as one of the gunmen shot him point-blank three times. Almina was dragged upstairs next, quote, Why did you write those letters, unquote, the assailants asked again and again. Using a shirt to muffle the sound of gunfire, the assassins forced Almina into a closet on the third floor and shot her three times in the head. Rahman, or Rahman, R-A-H-M-A-N, Almina Khalis' ten-year-old brother, became the next victim. The killers dragged the fragile child into the bedroom where Almina had been locked only moments earlier. Quote, I'll do anything you say, unquote, the child pleaded. Just don't hurt me, unquote. Okay, one of the gunmen said, and then pumped two bullets point-blank into the boy's skull, killing him instantly. Almina must have screamed at that very moment because the killer rushed to the closet where she lay dying. After discovering that she was still breathing, a gunman shot her two more times, again in the head. Meanwhile, Abdul Nur, N-U-R, a young Hanafi member who had gone shopping with Khadija, K-H-A-D-Y-J-A, returned to the house to get some money as the mother had forgotten to bring it when she went shopping. As Nur entered the house, he was ambushed by three of the eight assailants. They tied him up, dragged him upstairs, and shot him twice in the right temple. Like the terrified little boy, Noor died instantly. After murdering Noor, the assassins went upstairs where they discovered three infants sleeping. Two were taken to the bathroom and drowned in the tub. The third infant, a nine-day-old, was drowned in the bathroom sink. 
Bibi Khalis, B-I-B-I, the mother of the infants, was found in the basement. The killers gagged her and shot her twice in the head. Leaving her for dead, the killers went back to the third floor to check on Almina. This time, they were certain she was dead. Khadija Khalis became concerned when Abdul Noor didn't return to the grocery store. She left the store and rushed to the house where Hamas Khalis was visiting. Together, they hurried home. They knocked, but no one answered. Hamas Khalis peered in a side window and was startled by the sight of a stranger wandering around inside his home. He ordered his wife to go next door to a neighbor's house to call the police. By the time the police arrived, the assassins had vanished. Omina and Bibi Khalis survived the ordeal, though the gunshots left Bibi Khalis paralyzed. Although evidence was left at the scene of the crime, no significant breaks came in the case until Detective Ronald Washington of the District of Columbia Metropolitan Police Department moved temporarily to Philadelphia and infiltrated Mosque No. 12, the mosque the assassins had been linked to. After tracing long-distance telephone calls made by the assassins on the day of the murder, detectives honed in on James Price, a member of the hit team. Price, who was already suspected of a homicide in Philadelphia, confessed to the crimes in June and turned state's witness in July. Based on Price's confessions, the baby killers were soon in custody. The day before Price was scheduled to testify against his co-conspirators, the same man who had called Malcolm X a hypocrite and who stated in the same breath that hypocrites deserve to die gave a radio sermon on behalf of Elijah Muhammad. During the radio broadcast, which was reportedly heard by Price, Louis X. Farrakhan did not apologize for the dastardly destruction of innocent black babies by black Muslims, but he did have this to say. Evans then goes on to quote the frankly shocking and disgusting uh, words that Farrakhan had to say vis-a-vis uh, -vis this shocking crime. Quote, Let this be a warning to those of you who would be used as an instrument of a wicked government against our eyes. Be careful, because when the government is tired of you, they're going to dump you back into the laps of your people. And though Elijah Muhammad is a merciful man and will say, Come in and forgive you, Yet in the ranks of the black people today, there are younger men and women who have no forgiveness in them for traitors and stool pigeons. And they will execute you as soon as your identity is known, unquote. After hearing Louis X. Farrakhan's radio broadcast, Price refused to testify. The next day, he was found hanged in his cell. So again, uh... Although certainly uh, there's nothing implicating Farrakhan in the murder itself, uh, his defense and thinly veiled uh, warning against others who would defy Elijah Muhammad uh, is about as grotesque uh, a stance as one I think could take with regard to this uh, execution of this breakaway, members of this breakaway Muslim sect. And again, I think that uh, behavior like that, as well as uh, the curious behavior of uh, Louis X. Farrakhan vis-à-vis -vis the politics surrounding the death of Malcolm X, the man whose mantle he has assumed, warrants uh, closer scrutiny and investigation than they have received to date. That again... From For the Record, program number 21 from the fall of 1995, the text from The Judas Factor by Carl Evans. Uh, Milton article from the New York Times of March 20th of 2010 by Andy Newman and John Elligan, E-L-I-G-O-N, Killer of Malcolm X Gets Paroled. And it notes that uh, a guy named Thomas Hagen uh, was paroled 
and uh, that Mr. Aziz, another Mohammed Abdul Aziz, another of the convicted assassins of Malcolm X, from the Newark Mosque at which Louis X was present, was named by Farrakhan to be chief of security for the Harlem Mosque that Malcolm X once headed. To the victor goes the spoils. This concludes for the record program number 1000. In politics, nothing happens by accident. Weaponized feminism and the hashtag MeToo movement part three, the crucible part two. My name is Dave Emery. Have fun.